Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Are you a passionate surgical educator with something to say? Then join Behind the Knife and let the world hear. Behind the Knife is the number one surgery podcast in the world, with each episode reaching 20,000 listeners. Our current group of subspecialty teams have created incredibly diverse and engaging content. But their commitments are nearly finished, and we want to open up the opportunity to all of our listeners. We're looking for teams of three to four surgeons who will develop one new subspecialty podcast every four months. To learn more, check out the show notes or contact us at hello at behindthenife.org. Applications are due February 13th. Greetings from the 2023 Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma in sunny Orlando, Florida. I'm Patrick Georgioff, and today I've got three very special guests with me. Each is a member of the East Manuscript and Literature Committee. And today they presented at a session called Scientific Papers That Should Change Your Practice. And it was an awesome session, and this is a favorite session of mine as well. And today we're going to discuss some of the key points from these papers, and we're going to discuss why they're interesting, why they are impactful, and leave you with some food for thought about how it may impact your practice. And in case you're interested, we will include links uh, to each of these papers uh, in the show notes. So with that, I'd like to introduce Dr. Laura Brown, visiting clinical associate professor and clinical surgery residency uh, program director at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Peoria. Welcome, Laura. Thanks for having me. We have Brittany Bankhead, who is an assistant professor at Texas Tech University and director of academic surgical innovation. Brittany. Thanks for having me. One of our one of our BTK subspecialty <laughs> team members, Jonathan, and last but not least, Julia Coleman, who's a surgical critical care fellow at Ohio State University. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. And she's also the chair of the executive committee of the Residency Associate Society for the American College of Surgeons, who put out so much awesome material. So, Julia, let's start with you. You uh, covered trauma papers, so let's get straight into the first one. Um, which I think talks about platelets, right? Yeah, so the first paper was published in JTAG, so it was actually presented at East last year on the podium, um, and it's entitled Do Not Forget the Platelets, the Independent Impact of Red Blood Cell to Platelet Ratio on Mortality in Massively Transfused Trauma Patients. And uh, one of the reasons I like this piece is because there's been a lot of focus in the literature in the past on the red blood cell to FFP ratios and looking at one to one to one versus one to one to two. But this was nice because it focused specifically on the independent contribution of unbalanced platelet transfusion. And ultimately, they found that the impact of unbalanced platelet transfusion on 24-hour mortality is independent and potentially more pronounced than unbalanced FFP transfusion. And they concluded this by a retrospective review of over 9,200 patients from TQIP and found that compared with the one-to-one ratio of red blood cells to platelets, a gradual and consistent risk increase was observed for 24-hour mortality Mm. as the red blood cell to platelet ratio increased. 
Um, so some, some limitations to the study, certainly anytime you look at massive transfusion, there's limitations with survivor bias. Um, they didn't discern collection method of platelets, nor the age of products. Uh, additionally, didn't consider pre-hospital blood products, whole blood, hemostatic blood derivatives, antifibrinolytics, but I think was a really important contribution to the literature and highlighting uh, what we often forget about when we're massively transfusing patients, which is platelets. Right. We forget about it so often that we only put it in the second cooler. Right. It always comes late. <laughs> and we, it, I think that's what contributes to forgetting about it. So I'm glad to hear that it's time for us to try and move them up front to that first cooler, or pay attention sooner, get them into the patient with the rest of the product. All right. We're going to keep moving along at a healthy clip because we have lots to talk about. So pneumothorax, right? Yeah, that's the next one. So that was actually presented at AAST in 2021 um, and is part of ongoing work that's come out of Milwaukee looking at um, observing pneumothoraces that are less than or equal to 35 millimeters in stable trauma patients. Uh, this builds off previous work where they ultimately found that there was this tick point at 35 millimeters where below that, um, in general, you could observe patients safely. And so and to be clear, we're talking about 35 millimeters is the measurement of what to what? So this is actually looking at the um, parietal and visceral pleura on a CT chest. And I have seen in practice that people have now applied that rule in radiographs and looking at initial chest x-rays. But the original data that really found this tick point was on chest CTs, which is important. Um, And so uh, this group uh, that found this tick point then looked at ultimately the uh, tube thoracostomy rate and failure of observation in 266 patients uh, which were before and after implementation of this 35 millimeter guideline rule and found that their tube thoracostomy rate decreased from 28 to 18% with no statistically significant changes in observation failure, hospital or ICU length of stay, complications or mortality. So it really uh, supported further this guideline of 35 millimeters. Um, this study, you know, had limitations. Certainly it's retrospective. It's a single center. They were unable to determine clinical decision for chest tube for 38% of the patients that failed observation. Um, and they excluded patients who have a hemothorax or those with positive pressure ventilation. So a little bit of a smaller uh, sample size, of course, but I think is nice ongoing contribution to literature really saying that sometimes doing less is better. So when you take call next week and you have a healthy individual fell off their bike and has four rib fractures and has a three centimeter uh, pneumothorax, no hemothorax, otherwise completely stable, does this paper mean that you can just wash that then? Yeah, so that's what's suggested by this data. So if they have that measurement on their chest CT, then what I would do, and they describe, I would get a chest x-ray four hours after that, and then one at 24 hours. And either of those time points will be a nice interval to see if you failed, but the majority of people won't. So I think this is nice practice-changing data. Now, do any of you and anyone's institutions have, especially on the ED side, people doing needle aspiration of pneumothoraces? Because there's a bunch of data from the ED folks especially for spontaneous pneumothorax, but also for simple, totally uncomplicated, traumatic pneumothoraces that you can aspirate the air and avoid placing a chest tube and that that uh, results in high resolution rates uh, without any real serious complications or side effects. Um, I have not done that. I've never seen anyone do it. I've not done it. I don't see anyone doing it. I do see them starting to adopt 14 French catheters, pigtails, um, and they're starting to get much more comfortable with doing those, not always correctly, but often with doing them. And um, But I haven't seen them aspirate only. Sure. Yeah, I agree. We do 
a lot of pigtails, um, which I think there's great evidence to support, but I haven't seen it the aspiration. If they're Still. doing it, they're doing it without calling us and then That's sending right. the patient up. <laughs> also not it. a good sign. <laughs> they're not calling us to but, observe But there are a surprising number of papers about that. That was really interesting. It is really I've never, interesting. never seen it, never done it, but it could make sense yeah. too, especially in light of this data. Sure. All right, so the perennial question of when to start BT prophylaxis in trauma patients uh, with solid organ injury. Yeah, this debate continues um, as, as it has for years. Every conference I go to, this, there's some talk of this at the podium. So this is more of that literature. Um, and this specifically was uh, by our Boston group. Timing of thromboprophylaxis in patients with blunt abdominal solid organ injuries undergoing non-operative management. And so they ultimately found, after looking at over 25,000 patients in TQIP, uh, that were non-operatively managed that came in with a uh, blunt solid organ injury. So this is kidney, pancreas, liver, spleen, uh, that when you categorize patients by their timing of VTE, chemoprophylaxis initiation, early being less than 48 hours, intermediate 48 to 72, and late is greater than 72 hours, as we've seen, Late chemoprophylaxis was associated with a higher likelihood of DVT and PE, and intermediate was associated with a higher likelihood of DVT. And this was, amongst other factors we already know are associated with VT, older age, high-grade pancreatic injuries, uh, transfusion within four hours, GCS, systolic blood pressure, late initiation of chemoprophylaxis. Uh, but interestingly, they also found in this early group, again, less than 48 hours, there was a higher likelihood of bleeding in a particular cohort of patients that failed non-operative management. And those were patients with a history of diabetes, splenic injuries, and high-grade liver injuries. So this was another study to support early chemoprophylaxis in patients with blood solid organ injuries that are undergoing non-operative management at low likelihood of bleeding, but also highlighted there are some patients where you should potentially pause um, and think about an intermittent delay of chemoprophylaxis. This study, as many others have that have looked at this, retrospective, there's certainly some selection bias and some heterogeneity. Anytime you do a multi-center study and who's screening for VTE and how people are approaching VTE chemoprophylaxis, but I think really confirms what a lot of us have suspected and seen in other data, which is that early chemoprophylaxis is advisable in the majority of patients. So Julia, I have a question. <laughs> Do you think in those patients that there's a indication then to be doing a repeat CT, looking for pseudoaneurysms, looking for delayed bleeds? Is that something we should be doing so that we can initiate prophylaxis sooner? Or do you think that's not really useful, helpful? No, I think that's a great point. And um, I don't think there's actually a lot of great data to support that, yeah. certainly none prospectively. Yeah. Um, and I think where this becomes really challenging is in some of these high-grade solid organ injuries where um, there's also risk of interval pseudoaneurysm development and rupture. And so there's some data that's come out of um, Cincinnati, and shout out to uh, Dr. Goodman, um, and others that have looked at this where they've looked at interval CT scans in these um, high-grade injuries and have found a alarmingly high rate, actually, of pseudo-A development, and that can be a really devastating complication. So, um, you know, the short answer is that the jury is still out, but I think some people are certainly starting to look at this. And so that magic number is, is 48 hours, though, right? Because you really didn't see a lot of increase in risk, even for high-grade injuries uh, or high-risk patient populations beyond that 48-hour mark. 
Right. That that's the mark. I you know, and I would say there's also some literature, and I'm biased because I've con- contributed to some of this that would argue that you should even be thinking at 24 hours. Right. So I think you yeah. know, even within that 48 hours, a lot happens in that mm-hmm. switch to that pathologic hypercoagulability of trauma. And so, you know, clinically, really, that's for the solid organs, right? Liver, spleen, kidney you're really thinking for those grade one, twos, and threes, can you push 24 hours? And when you're up to those grade fours and grade fives, it's 48 hours, uh, more severe injuries. It's There's some space, patient-specific factors. And as Brittany mentioned, are you rescanning? When are you rescanning, mm-hmm. et cetera? Uh, so the, the debate rages, but... Um, and I think if you wanted this <laughs> podcast to last like a, a year and a day, <laughs> yeah, you okay. would then talk about those patients who have that plus also a TBI, right? Because sure. that's when it becomes really challenging the discussion. Fight with yeah. neurosurgery. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to a less... Con- I'm just kidding. A more controversial topic. Right? <laughs> Here we go. Blunt cerebral vascular injury. Yeah. So this was a paper that was published in JTAX as well in the last two years, uh, presented at AAAC in 2020 entitled Universal Screening for Blunt Cerebrovascular Injury, and ultimately found that the incidence of BCVIs determined by universal screening of all blunt trauma patients with CTA neck is 7%, which is more than twice the rate previously reported, and therefore consideration should be given to implementation of universal screening for BCVI using neck CTA in all blunt trauma patients. Mm Um, This was from a single institution that started uh, doing actually universal screening um, and looked at um, over 6,200 patients and looked at both the incidence of BCVI as well as the performance of various criteria for BCVI screening, specifically Denver uh, criteria, the expanded Denver criteria and Memphis criteria, and found that in any of those criteria that at most they would capture 52% of patients who actually had BCVI. So we've been missing so quite say, a bit. Say that again when we're the last. Sure. Yeah. So with any of these screening criteria, whether it's the Denver criteria, Memphis criteria, at best, they would detect 52% of patients with BCVI. Uh, that would otherwise have been identified in universal screening. So it really underscored that we're missing a lot of these patients, even with the best of screening criteria out there. Right. And, and then this is an institution, I think you mentioned in the presentation, uh, with a lot of blunt trauma, MVCs specifically, right? Right. So they had a high rate of blunt trauma from MVCs versus falls, which is really where that national data of the 2% BCVI incidence comes from. So, you know, certainly I think that higher mechanism trauma with MVCs can certainly explain some of the higher prevalence of BCVI, but I I do think it's some really humbling data. Yeah, I certainly agree. And this is a fascinating issue that is still very much being worked through. And this paper showed that using existing screening guidelines, uh, around 50% of injuries would be missed. And so the question is, what are the clinical implications of this? And can we do anything about it? And at what cost? And while most BCVIs are low grade, these can definitely still cause a stroke. Uh, in fact, up to half of patients who develop neurologic symptoms do so more than 12 hours after their injury. And so the question is, how many strokes are we willing to accept? And that's a big question. And in regards to treatment, we know that antithrombotic therapy works, that it decreases stroke risk, whether that's a simple aspirin as it is in most cases for these mostly low-grade injuries, or whether it's a heparin infusion. And then lastly, should make note of radiation and, and contrast exposure. And if a PAN scan itself is protocoled correctly, it can be done so to involve no additional radiation uh, or contrast when you add on a CTA of the neck. And I think the trick, too, anytime that you talk about universal screening, you know, what are we capturing that's truly clinically significant? Um, because... 
what I think is more important in this data is not necessarily the incidence of BCVI, but of those 7%, how many that we would have missed otherwise led to strokes and would have changed management. And so you get a little bit into the prevention paradox when you start trying to interpret this data. But I think you always have to ask yourself that with universal screening. What am I capturing that really matters clinically? Before we started recording to it, to share the patient we had two weeks ago who was a high-speed MVC, completely stable GCS-15, not a scratch on her, and got a pan scan with a CTA neck and found to have a grade three or four, I can't recall now, injury. Got put in the ICU, got started on a heparin drip, developed neuro changes in the ICU under surveillance and was quickly intervened upon and recovered completely. And so the question is, if you did not scan that patient and she might have gone home (laughs) which would have been absolutely devastating or even been admitted to the floor where you may or may not have caught a change in a neuro change that fast all right fantastic let's move on to our critical care papers that were presented by Brittany, and you're going to start by talking about early renal replacement therapy Yeah, and whether you should be or not. Yeah, so this was uh, the New England Journal of Medicine. It's called Timing of Initiation of Renal Replacement Therapy in Acute Kidney Injury. And, you know, for me, this was really about uh, that patient that comes in with a NSTI and they're getting resuscitated with fluid, both pre-op and intra-op, maybe a little bit post-op. You debride them, they go to the ICU, and all night long, you and the resident are watching the Foley bag, right? And you're seeing what kind of urine they're making. And over the next couple of days, uh, you know that their fluid balance is going to shift and you can just feel the need for dialysis <laughs> is around the corner. And should you just go for it? And should you dialyze them early? And that's really what this uh, study was looking at. So it's a randomized controlled trial of 168 hospitals in 15 different countries. And their inclusion criteria was being an adult over the age of 18 in an ICU with a severe AKI. And then the thing I liked about it actually was that the attending physician had to confirm clinical equipoise. And, you know, the authors say, well, that introduces some subjectivity into this. We understand that that's potentially a limitation, but I like that because I, it's, it's not always so black and white. And we do have that, that feeling and that gestalt of, Ooh, I just don't know if I really should start this early or not. The exclusion criteria they had were any emergent indication. So emergent indication as an actual indication acutely, right? In the ICU, any of the AEIOUs. And so either that or having had dialysis previously or having an advanced CKD or other uncommon etiologies of AKI, like a renal obstruction or something. And so they broke these groups into two groups, both an accelerated and a standard group. That accelerated group, as soon as they decided, were started within 12 hours. And then the standard group only got dialysis for those actual indications, those AEIOUs. Primary outcome was death at 90 days. Secondary outcomes were RRT dependence, death, or other adverse renal events or length of stay. Uh, they had almost 3,000 patients. And the results showed that death was equivalent. Uh, The mortality was the same in both groups. The RRT dependence, however, was higher in that accelerated group, the group that got started earlier. Higher. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then adverse events uh, like hypotension and hypophosphatemia was also higher in that accelerated group. The only thing that was a little bit better in the accelerated group was the shorter ICU length of stay. But there was no difference in vent-free or vasoactive-free days at 28 days. So... 
for me, I, you know, even, even on our critical care BTK podcast, <laughs> I certainly have some colleagues who did not like this study because they, you just got that feeling that this patient's going to need right. to be dialyzed. They've had so much fluid and they're just looking like they want it. You but want to get that head start. Yeah. But mm-hmm. it, this, you know, really doesn't show that, that there's really no difference in mortality and there's more adverse events and dependence on it. Yeah. I feel like there's a theme coming from these papers, which is that <laughs> earlier is not always not better. Always better. Right? Yeah. And you know, it's our job as intensivists in the ICU oftentimes to do as little as possible and keep yes. the patient as normal as possible. Oh, so right. if you keep seeing these things, it's early or late, you're yes. usually on the wrong end of it. You're gonna kinda of stay right in the middle. So and, true. And this paper was awesome. And this is like a like a master class on how to do a clinical trial. Totally. Like this is totally bald. Yeah. Like they these these I mean, God bless whoever did this because it is, <laughs> it is all, I can't imagine the amount of work, but like so impressive yeah. and clean, right? Really? And it answers your question very yeah. clearly. And you mentioned that the people who went early had decreased rates of renal recovery. Yeah. So not only did it not work for, again, you, you're talking about very kind of yes and no uh, right. outcome of mortality, right? Right. But also, their kidneys didn't wake up. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it's not, not only just acute treatment, but the long-term right. effect to the kidneys. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so yeah. let's move on to hypothermia. Oftentimes dealt with kind of more so in the medical ICU, right. but we have plenty of patients that cross over to surgical ICU sure. in which we consider this. And even more so because we don't do it quite as often, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's also the reason why this is an important paper. So yeah. tell us about it. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what I emphasized today at the at the session is that we, we don't have these purely cardiac arrests coming to us like they do to make you. And so it, it is going to be a... A hard choice. You're you're fighting against some other pathophysiology whenever you've got this patient, whether it's in hospital, out of hospital, whatever it is. And so I think having this um, in our tool belt of I know what this study showed, and so now I'm going to use it as a clinical decision making tool. Maybe not the only one, but as a good start, um, I think is really helpful. So that's why I included it. So this study, their inclusion criteria were uh, patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with either a cardiac or an unknown origin um, of that arrest. And they randomized these patients into a targeted hypothermia group at 33 degrees Celsius and then a controlled rewarming period thereafter or targeted normothermia with early treatment of fever. And their primary outcome was death from any cause at six months. And then their secondary outcomes were the patient's functional outcomes at six months. Both obviously the thing at the bedside when we're trying to decide what to do, that's what we're talking about. And so the results of this study, they had 1,850 enrolled and death was equivalent. Their mortality numbers were the same for both the hypothermia and the normothermia group. The functional outcomes, you would say, oh, is that one different? No, those were also the same. What was different were the arrhythmias leading to hemodynamic instability, and that was higher in the hypothermia group. And so for me, you know, this study showed that there was no incidence of lower mortality with that targeted hypothermia, and same with functional outcomes. And so when we think about our populations, like a trauma patient who had chest pain and then crashed their car and maybe you're dealing with a concomitant MI and their traumatic injuries and that lethal triad and hypercoagulability and do I really want to cool them and what does that look like? Am I ruining their chance at a functional outcome improvement later on just by addressing the traumatic portions now? I think this really helps us to have another good clinical decision-making tool to, to make those decisions. Yeah, and this study is a follow-up to a large one mm-hmm. 
2019, also in New England Journal of Medicine, that compared, I think it was 33 and 36, mm-hmm. also was negative, no, no yeah. improvement with it. And so, yeah. you know, and especially in our surgical world, so that probably kind of somewhat puts the nail, nail in the on true target temperature men. But we were talking about this before we hit record was, you know, we're used to managing fevers though and fevers, especially in our TBI patients. And so the question is, is it appropriate to utilize guidelines for targeted temperature management to avoid fever as opposed to being more reactive? And I think that's one of the questions uh, because these are are well sussed out protocols and guidelines to make people not be febrile, right? And so that that jury's still, you know, out for that in terms of how you deliver care and from a systems-based standpoint. One other interesting point, and this was a crazy case that I had about four years ago, we had a, a gentleman who crashed his car and was brought in as an acute MI because he had EKG changes and he had a rest in the field. And so they resuscitated him, got Rosk, but then went ahead and cooled him without ever scanning him because they forgot about the trauma mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. Turns out he then thoroughly decompensated because he was bleeding to death from a liver laceration and now he was 32 degrees. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was not ideal and I probably would never do that again. So. Wise recommendation. <laughs> but I think too, this is another great paper to help in your education, right? Because Anytime someone's heart stops or has had a recent history of it stopping, and I think our nurses and our residents, our medical students and EMTs, everyone's, you know, trying to talk about the cooling and well, but are you thinking about their functional outcomes? And and so I think it's another great paper. Yeah, so click the show notes. Read it. It's yeah. a good one. Another very, very high quality paper too, just yeah. like the yeah. dialysis paper we just talked about. So Let's move on to the last one, which is a little bit of a departure from that, and that we're talking about end-of-life care. Yeah. I chose this one, too. I know I, we were joking earlier. It's a little bit of a, I call it soft science paper. Oh, it's so good. It's, gr- it's great, though, because it is it is about feelings and grief and these kinds of things that we, because we do so many hard things that... Um, and technical things every day, sometimes we, we don't pay give the attention that this deserves, and it affects people for the rest of their lives. And so I think sometimes we forget that. And so this was, this is called, it's from the Lancet. Uh, it's called a three-step support strategy for relatives of patients dying in the intensive care unit. So this was an unblinded multi-center cluster randomized trial of 34 French ICUs. They included uh, the families of patients who died after a stay of at least two days. Um, and so they, the intervention that they had was a three component intervention with both the physician and the nurse that was in charge of the patient. First, they would meet with the family in a family conference to prepare the family for what was about to happen. Then in the ICU room, they would visit during the dying process for active support. During both, the dying yes. Process, again, so. the physician and the nurse. And then after the patient had passed, they would meet um, for condolences and closure again with the patient. The goal, and this is important, I think, the goal of intervention, and I like how they clearly define it, was to ask family member, allow family members to ask questions, to express emotion, to make sure medical information was understood, and then to assure that patient care would continue until death. And in the usual care arm, the family meetings still happened like normal, but it was without systematic exploration of all these issues. And, you know, I, I'm guilty or, or unknowingly have always done this where I, I don't go in the room when the patient is, is actively dying. I've always left the, the families um, alone. So that was in the usual care arm as well. And then there was no follow-up. There was no 
um, meeting after the patient had died. And so the endpoints for this study were looking at proportion of relatives with prolonged grief in a, in a questionnaire six months after their loved one had died, and then satisfaction with end-of-life communication, anxiety, depression, and PTSD symptoms of those family members. Uh, there ended up being 875 family members, and uh, on these six-month follow-ups, they found that there was a lower prevalence in that group of prolonged grief, depression, anxiety, and PTSD, which I think is really impactful. So, you know, kind of the thing I talked about today was that potential takeaways for for any ICU um, is, you know, should you be formalizing a bereavement policy in your ICU? Something that I certainly took away from it is we maybe should have an increased presence of doctors and nurses in the room during the dying process. And then also that separate discussion with the family after the loved one's death for closure. I thought was another really good point from this um, paper. I'm really glad you picked this. I feel like it's something that we don't pay enough attention to mm-hmm. clinically, right? And mm-hmm. it's a big part of the process. You know, giving care is not just about optimal clinical care. Mm-hmm. It's about also being able to provide that part of humanistic care that's so important to patient recovery. And we're seeing that over and over again in the ICU, even in our trauma patients. This is where compassionomics comes from, right? The idea that showing compassion, being part of the human experience is just as important to patient recovery as whether or not you cool them. Yeah, I love this paper, too. I'm glad you picked it because I think we have so many protocols in the ICU, but I I really, truly can't think of that many that apply to this sort of humanistic aspect of of medicine. And, um, you know, I do think sometimes there is a apprehension to go into the room during an active dying process because of whether it's a sentiment of I want to give the family privacy or even just your own discomfort with sitting with someone through that. And I, I think this is... Uh, really a powerful paper because it does, it protocolizes something that should just be part of what we do. So I, I love that you included that. I think it's, it's great. All right, Laura, let's finish this off with you. Today, you gave us a fantastic overview of some of the bigger challenges facing emergency general surgery. And you talked a little bit about the genesis of EGS as a specialty in and of itself. And one of the things you mentioned was the lack of a formal EGS system for delivering optimal care and tracking outcomes in EGS patients. We have this for for trauma, but we don't have this for EGS. Yeah, so you know, I think it's... Part of what stemmed my interest and why I spent a little bit more time on background was because it wasn't always this way. We didn't always have EGS services that took primary call and um, left the elective surgeons to do their elective practice. And so it wasn't really specialization. And that was really something that was born of the AAST um, slightly over a decade ago. And, you know, there are several places now in the country that still have general surgeons taking emergency general surgery call. And so I think it's important to recognize that this is a system in evolution. And about a decade ago, uh, the AAST really started asking the question of whether we could apply systems knowledge like we do for trauma to EGS. And it started, you know, within about the last six years, we really have a uh, string of data that shows that higher volume centers for EGS have better mortality outcomes, that um, it's true for high risk patients that they do better in high volume centers. There's um, 
quite a bit of variation in care amongst hospitals in the country. And that's, you know, all of this is using NIS data. So uh, it's, you know, a very broad database perspective on how we deliver care to this particular patient population. What I thought was interesting was two of the more recent papers that suggested that better EGS care comes from those places that have trauma centers. So what that suggests is that that systems approach to how we manage EGS is what's important and that patients could benefit from that in places that don't have a system currently in place. And um, that led to really the development of the EGS uh, verification program, which is a set of program standards that govern um, very similar to how it does in trauma govern an institutional institution's commitment to giving EGS care, the resources that are required, including time in the OR, which we all fight and, and need. And then there's the um, other resources like uh, data collection systems and uh, quality improvement processes that come from that, the ability to do outreach and generate research so that we can continually drive the engine to better care for these group of patients. And so I really think that this is an idea whose time has come, which is that we do need systems for EGS care. And then the question from that is, what does it look like? Because it's been kind of a slow evolution in taking over EGS care, but I think a lot of people feel threatened by the idea that we would transfer all patients to an EGS center, and that was one of the things that came up in discussion. And I don't know what you guys think, but I don't know that we actually can afford to take every patient I mean, I think I think the Q&A, as you alluded, was really interesting because, you know, as we sort of formalize a system for EGS like we do for trauma, we have to make sure that it's done in a way that is equitable and institutionally specific, you know, because if we're going to say, well, we have to transfer people to higher volume EGS centers, well, they have to have the, those beds, right? And, and the space to take those patients. And, and moreover, we need to make sure that we're transferring patients to where they actually need to go. I mean, I've heard so many stories even today at breakfast from TMDs who, you know, are, are dealing with the ramifications of trauma transfers to higher level of care that don't always make sense um, because it's you transfer them not even to, you know, what they really need for that patient. And so I think uh, there will be some growing pains probably as, as EGS verification and, and systems mature, but it will have to be done in a way that makes sense for each patient and, and each institution. It's it's a little more complicated than just, you know, you make the system and you transfer the patient, right? Yeah. I'll tell you the other the other place that makes me think about and maybe this is the next wave of the future too is is burns. I as we talk about this equitable system and does it make sense I can't, we cover a very large catchment area in West Texas at Texas Tech. And I can't tell you how many hundreds of miles patients have traveled to me, sometimes in a helicopter for a little tiny partial thickness on their leg. And we send them right home. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so the idea of telehealth and mm -hmm. consultation and, and utilizing some other things to make sure that we're doing the right thing for the patient and the system, mm -hmm. uh, I think is really important. One of the last papers that I discussed, and I, this was, it was more of a thought paper and thought provoking, meant to be thought provoking, which was the idea that we have the chance for the greatest impact in EGS patients preoperatively when we're deciding whether to manage them 
um, non-operatively or operatively. And we have the chance at that point to really decide which patients need to be transferred or if there's the resources that they need at the institution they're at. And I think as we go forward, I would encourage us as a field to really focus on deciding how to make the impact at that preoperative stage and to for certain diagnoses to really hone in on the um, necessity of transfer, right? And uh, I think that's really where the rubber is going to meet the road in the next 10 years. I really think that's where we'll see the most difference. And I think it's going to be very important as we have a lot of very new grads coming in who don't have a lot of experience taking care of these very, very sick emergency general surgery patients and who need to be able to phone a friend at a larger institution. One of the neat things that came out in JAMA surgery this year was the uh, geospatial mapping of EGS centers. And that was in, I think, September. And it was really interesting to see that there is a great big hole west of the Mississippi where folks really have to travel 100, 200, 300 miles to get to an advanced EGS center. And I don't think that's the right thing for every patient. Mm -hmm. So. And Laura, uh, one point that some of our listeners may not realize is that the specialty of emergency general surgery is really itself only 10 to 15 years old. And so this system, or really lack thereof, is, is nascent. It's brand new, especially when compared to mature trauma systems. And because of that, I think there's ample opportunity, as you mentioned, to build a robust system that takes into account quality and resource utilization, patient transfers, et cetera. And really something that is quite unique is best practices for non-operative management of EGS patients. So, and I think we do a better job of that in trauma, right? Like right. we, we follow non-op failure, of non-operative management of traumatic injuries. We were just talking about that with blunt solid organ injury, but you know, we don't always do that with EGS, right? Failure of non-operative management. And so I think, you know, there's again, another maybe lesson from trauma that we can learn and translate over to EGS because it's not always a metric we look at. Mm-hmm. There was a, a great article that just came out in the Annals of Surgery uh, this month from uh, Eleanor Kaufman. And, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to kind of review this and speak with her after the session today. And um, I think what was interesting about her approach to this is that, you know, it's very hard to do randomized control trials about operative intervention in EGS because this is an emergency situation. You don't always have family there to consent. The patient may or may already be intubated. And so very similar to trauma, you need to make decisions quickly and move quickly. And so the way that she was able to really introduce that level of randomization was to use an, um, statistical technique involving an instrumental variable analysis. And uh, the short of this, as complicated as it is, is that you use a variable that affects the operative intervention. So in this case, surgeon preference to go to the operating room. That surgeon preference doesn't affect mortality. And so by introducing randomization for the surgeon's preference to operate based on their last 150 cases, let's say, they have a 47% chance 47% chance of wanting to operate versus another surgeon in the same institution who only operates about 12% of the time. And that randomization based on diagnoses and with large enough numbers allows you to determine what the operative um, risk is mm. um, and, and really compare that to the non-operative cases. And so her study was really interesting in that you kind of get an idea that those um, HPB diagnoses is the ones that I pointed out specifically in the data that have very low operative operative mortality and have lower um, complications and uh, more routine discharges. And so 
those patients probably would benefit from an operative intervention as opposed to those patients who have a perforated viscous or, you know, colorectal cancer who have a long course ahead of them. They have a, a you know, a long operative course ahead of them. They're going to be discharged to a nursing facility, and that's probably not necessarily in line with what their wishes were. And so being more honest about what operative management means for the patient, what their likely complications are is really important. Yeah. And last, let's finish off with one thing. I, I uh, had only been peripherally aware of this. You mentioned uh, an AI tool. Oh, the Potter tool. So that risk calculation, right? This is the idea that we all um, use a risk calculator in our heads. And um, in the old days, we used to use NISQIP, even for emergency general surgery. We know that doesn't really work. Even when you use that surgeon fudge factor box that's at the bottom of the form, it doesn't really give you a good idea of how the patient's going to do. And so most emergency general surgeons have abandoned using the NISQIP tool a long time ago. There are other tools that are developed, but the one that's been validated for about five years now is the Potter tool. And it's a predictive outcome tool using um, optimal classification trees, which sounds very, very complicated, but in short means that the variables are not linear. So it's not age on a linear basis as risk, but instead age in the setting of uh, whether the patient's septic or not and whether the patient has a higher BMI. And so those have different weights in terms of mortality. Um, it takes artificial intelligence, certainly not Laura Brown intelligence, but artificial intelligence to figure out what that risk is. And it's a great tool and it's been already validated in emergency general surgery patients. The group that published this year actually tried to validate it in elderly patients. And what we learned from their data is that in patients who are greater than 85 years old, the data doesn't bear out. We don't get enough. Um, our C statistic is low enough that we really can't predict uh, from that tool. So once we get more information on elderly patient outcomes into NISQIP and into the Potter tool, we'll be able to, since it's a learning algorithm over time, be able to use it for elderly patients. But until that's there, I would not use Potter on anybody who's older than 85. And then the data also showed that we're not too shabby, though, right, in terms of uh, us surgeons predicting mortality <laughs> compared to the, the, the so smart computer, right? Yeah, so the group at Pittsburgh, I was so impressed by this because I thought, oh, there's all this. Where have I been? There's these great fancy tools and AI and, and you know, that's an app on your phone. And, and then I thought, you know, I just do this in my head, though. And I thought... This is fascinating because they show that surgeons are actually able to fairly reliably predict mortality and um, ventilator, time on the ventilator. Uh, we do, we kind of overestimate complications. And uh, that's now at an experienced quaternary care center with, you know, 17 different acute care surgeons um, predicting. But their receiver operating curve was pretty impressive, uh, pretty close to both the Potter tool and the NISQIP tool. So maybe we aren't so bad after yeah. all. <laughs> we, we can't predict some of it. Sorry. Wrap it up on that. Yeah, I know. We did well on a good note. <laughs> so, thank you all, Julia, Brittany, Laura, for joining us on Behind the Knife. And um, it was a wonderful conversation. Great seeing everyone. And yeah, thanks for having us. Go ahead and dominate the day. That was a fantastic conversation, and I really hope you enjoyed it. I want to give a quick plug for East. This is a fun, very active, and highly engaging organization, and I highly encourage you to check out all of the fantastic resources that East has to offer. This includes practice management guidelines, scholarships, and the East TraumaCast, among other awesome podcasts like the brand new In the Arena series. Thanks again for listening. 
Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.